This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Busy week, as they're all going to be over the next 12 months. Before we talk to our guest, Cory Booker's campaign manager, uh, a few thoughts since we've last been together. So one, we had the big Iowa dinner, the Liberty and Justice dinner uh, that we talked about on last week's episode. It happened on Friday night. I actually watched all the speeches of my wife on C-SPAN. It was by far the most time I ever spent with C-SPAN on my TV in my life. And, uh, you know, I thought a few things. One, I didn't think anybody had the kind of breakout moment that Barack Obama had in 2007 that would completely shift the race. You know, I thought for the most part, you know, the candidates were all strong. You know, judging on some of the news coverage and the people I've talked to who were there, I do think Mayor Pete organizationally um, had the strongest night. He had the biggest crowd uh, with the most energy. Some estimates are about a, a third of the audience. Um, so that's thousands of people that they got to the event in Des Moines on, on a rainy Friday. So we'll see if he can leverage that. You know, coming out of Iowa, there are some new polls this week. One actually had Biden all the way dropping to fourth, although close with Warren and, and Mayor Pete, uh, one, two, and Sanders there. So what's clear is in Iowa, if you if you believe these polls, we do have a, a four-person tussle at the top. So what's changed there is Mayor Pete has now joined Sanders, Warren, and Biden in that top tier. And, you know, they're all kind of, you know, mid-teens to low-20s. So there's going to be a lot of jockeying going on. And, and I think coming out of this dinner, I think Mayor Pete's probably the person who has the best chance to build on his current support levels. So it'll be fascinating to see uh, what he's able to do there. Um, I don't think anybody bombed, but I don't think anybody necessarily had a breakout moment from their speeches themselves. I will. My uh, 15 uh, and 11-year-old kids, uh, they didn't want to sit through all of it, but they watched some of the speeches, and uh, they actually loved Andrew Yang. So, uh, you know, maybe the Yang gang will show some some strength and growth out there. I think the other important moment this week as it relates to the 2020 election where we had a set of Times, New York Times polls that looked at the battleground states six battleground states, which, you know, created a lot of alarm among Democrats because they showed a uh, really close race amongst, you know, they tested Biden and Warren and Sanders against Trump. And, you know, it showed that these races are going to be close. I think that's important. We just had, I'm, I'm speaking to you today on Wednesday, the day after the elections that happened in many parts of the country. Democrats won the gubernatorial race in Kentucky in a huge upset, won back the state Senate in Virginia, so now control the entire apparatus in Virginia, had huge local election wins in some of the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, which could not be more important because Pennsylvania is kind of ground zero of this election. So we should all feel really good as Democrats about what happened on Tuesday, but Trump wasn't on the ballot. And, you know, even in Kentucky, uh, as happy as we should be about the governor's race, you know, Republicans had a pretty good night uh, down ballot. So, you know, for me, this should just be another fact for people to digest that there's going to be no shortcuts with this guy. You know, I don't think he's going to get convicted. 
I don't think we're going to win in a blowout. It's going to take all of us doing everything we can uh, to win a very close race. And what these battleground states show is he's going to overperform in the battlegrounds compared to nationally. So, um, you know, he lost by 3 million votes last time by two percentage points. You know, he could lose by four, even five percentage points and still eke out a, a battleground state victory in the Electoral College if we're not careful. So uh, it should be not reason to panic. It should be reason for us all to think through what we can do. So we leave nothing on the field, make plans for volunteering uh, for our nominee, giving what money we can uh, to groups uh, and to the candidates of our choice. But we're all going to have to have our personal plan about how we're going to help, you know, our nominee win. Because if we don't do that, I think we're going to fall short. Other piece of news, a little personal, is uh, I'm helping a digital-first progressive organization called Acronym, which did a lot of really important digital work in down-ballot races, state legislative races in 2018, has started some online media companies, um, so digital newspapers in Virginia and Arizona, and we're going to expand those out. And they were very involved in in the Virginia races that happened this week. But, you know, acronym is going to step into, I think, a really important breach here, which is between now and when we have a nominee, we're quite vulnerable. Uh, The Trump campaign and his allies are spending a lot of money with digital ads uh, in Wisconsin and Arizona and Michigan and Pennsylvania. Um, They're organizing, they're registering. And we have to make sure that our nominee doesn't get into this race with a huge deficit. Our nominee won't be able to take the stage till May or June. They're already going to be challenged because that's a really quick turnaround from primary to general. So there's a lot of important work that has to get done between now and and June, which is why we're deciding to try and fill the breach here. We had a lot of people uh, reach out to us this week with helps of offers of their own creative ideas, but also a lot of people contributed through ActBlue to make sure that we're doing all we can um, over these next seven or eight months when Trump is going to try and define the race the Democrats in ways that make it really hard for our nominee, I think, to get off the mat. Um, You know, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan won re-election in large measure based on the first 18 to 19 months of the cycle, you know, before they had a determined opponent. But none of us spent money like the way Trump is spending money. So for those of you that are interested in, in making sure we do everything we can to win the election, this period's really important. And our candidates are out there trying to win the nomination. They're not talking to general election voters. They're spending all their time right now, obviously, in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. A couple of those may end up being battlegrounds. But, you know, they're running a completely different race. And so Trump does have some advantages here, which is linked to my point about the polls, which is incumbents have advantages in these races. He's going to have more money. He's going to be better prepared for the general election. He's doing a lot of advertising in these battleground states. So, again, I I think the screenplay about how we defeat Donald Trump is not going to be easy. (laughs) It's not going to be by a landslide. It's going to be a grinded out affair. So one of those people uh, who are running that hopes to be that Democratic nominee facing off in the Thunderdome with Donald Trump is Cory Booker, senator from New Jersey. And we're going to be joined today by his campaign manager, Adiso Damase, who is a kind of legendary operative, uh, got his start actually in Iowa, was an organizer in Polk County, which is the county where Des Moines is, for John Kerry back in his victorious Iowa caucus campaign in 04, managed Cory Booker's special election in 13, uh, played a senior role for Hillary Clinton uh, in 08, then came and helped us in the Obama campaign. So Adisu is um, a really well-respected organizer, Someone who obviously knows Cory Booker really well, having led his Senate race uh, back in uh, 2013 and agreed to rejoin Cory to run his race. So we're going to talk to Adisu about what is Cory Booker's pathway to the nomination, 
Right now, in Iowa anyway, it looks like there's the big four, Biden, Sanders, Warren, and, and Mayor Pete's now a new entrant to that group. You know, does he see the race staying that way? And is this really a battle for who comes in fifth? Or, do, you know, does he think folks like Cory Booker have a chance to to do better than that? What they're planning to do vis-a-vis the March calendar where most of the country votes, most of the delegates are awarded. Um, they have not had the same success raising money as some of the other candidates. I think Joe Biden is also in this a situation, Kamala Harris, others, where even if they do well, you know, in February in the early states, how are they going to put together the operation, both resources and, and organizationally, to maximize that um, when you've got other candidates, Warren and Sanders and Mayor Pete, that are funded? So talk to Adisu about how they're handling that challenge and, and really just go deep in the early states and, and get a better sense of how the, the Booker campaign sees this race and what their pathway may be. So I think it, it'll be a great conversation. We'll also talk a little bit about the general election. So um, really uh, eager for you guys to spend some time with Adisu. Adisu Demise, Cory Booker's campaign manager, legendary Democratic operative and organizer. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today. It is, it is honestly an honor and a pleasure to be with you, David. I never thought I would be here, to be honest with you, but here we are. Well, I'm excited you're here, my, my friend. Um, well, let's jump right into it. I'm actually going to start with, okay, we're a little less than 90 days out from the Iowa caucuses. This thing's starting to get real. Uh, you know, as you see it, what's Cory Booker's pathway to the Democratic nomination? Yeah, look, I think it, it has been since day one of this campaign, it starts in February. It starts in the four early states. And our theory of the case is um, you have to perform there to be able to play the delegate game that starts on Super Tuesday. And so we've been building in all four early states, uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, uh, team on the ground, brick by brick um, to, to be competitive in those states. Ultimately, I think South Carolina on the back end of that uh, is exceptionally important to us with the heavily African-American electorate to springboard us towards Super Tuesday, where we can uh, uh, get our fair share of delegates and uh, continue that fight all the way through June and and ultimately potentially even July in Milwaukee. Right. So this may be a little simplistic, but as I think about it for you, um, is it fair to say you need to do what like the minimum you need to do, I want to come back to what that might be, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, Nevada, so that you have the strength heading into South Carolina. And I'm, you know, I want to talk about the organization building there. So that you come out of South Carolina, presumably doing better than Biden, so that you might have the best chance to secure, you know, if not a majority, a plurality of the African-American vote in those contests to come in in March. Is, is that kind of how you guys are looking? I and mean, obviously everybody says they it's all, it's almost like you've done to... this before, David. <laughs> well, no, but I've never been part of a race like this. I know it is. It is different with so many candidates, but, but you're right. No, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, gauntlet in particular, you know, there's obviously delegates at stake there, but I think it is as much a, about, uh, momentum and, uh, and narrative going into Nevada, South Carolina and Super Tuesday, as it is ultimately about the delegates that you can get in those, in those two states. And, the, and so, yes, um, we believe that African-American voters are for Corey and have been for, uh, every, basically every nominee since Carter, the key to getting enough delegates to win the nomination. We believe that Corey has the best case to make and proven record of winning those kind of voters once we sort of round the bend into South Carolina and Super Tuesday. But the reality also is that Super tu- that uh, South Carolina is only uh, three days before Super Tuesday. It's on Leap Day, February 29th. Super Tuesday is on March 3rd. And so you need to have a, a, a wind at your back, uh, not just after South Carolina, but heading into South Carolina. And for the, for us, that 
obviously means Nevada, but it also means you can't leave Iowa and New Hampshire out of the equation. So every time we did the math over the course of the, pre the preparation uh, for the campaign and really over the last nine months of being in the campaign, the path has, has remained the same, which is you have to do well in Iowa. You have to hold your own in New Hampshire. And then when voters of color in, in um, Nevada and particularly African-American voters in South Carolina start um, – uh, you know, being decisive uh, that Corey is the choice of those voters, he'll be able to win the delegates necessary to, to secure the nomination. Yeah, I'm curious about that. So, so maybe and part of this is with a Cory Booker head on, but but just generally as a smart strategist, I think there's a lot of people, and I, you know, I talked to some yesterday actually, who were like, well, why don't some of these candidates skip states? Like, everyone always looks for a different way to do this, but my sense is the early states remain as important as they ever have been, particularly, I think, maybe in a, in a big field like this. Like, you just have to run the obstacle course the way it's laid out, would be my sense. Is it, so that's sort of where you guys landed. Honestly, a great metaphor. It is an obstacle course, and that is definitely where we've landed. And, and I do think, you know, many other candidates had different strategies, thinking that you could play a Super Tuesday strategy like Giuliani did back in 2007 and 8, or you could wait until South Carolina to invest. But, but I don't think that you can uh, – I don't think you can ultimately survive from a narrative or financial or delegate perspective if you are not competing in Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, and Nevada. And so – uh, again, we, we kept doing the math and kept doing the sort of political calculation and strategic calculation, and you have to run the obstacle course. That's the way the calendar is. It starts on February 3rd in Iowa. We've been there since day one investing and have never sort of wavered from that strategy. And New Hampshire, frankly, as well, um, it can be the backstop. It can either springboard you like Kerry did by winning both of them uh, in 2004, or it can... As you well know, uh, David, it can be the counterweight to to Iowa and and uh, force you to settle in for a long nominating process. But I don't think that you can win this nomination without being competitive or at least trying in, in both of those states uh, leading into the end of February and into March. You had to bring up New Hampshire, right, didn't you? you just had to do it. <laughs> hey, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about Iowa for, for a minute. So uh, I want to dig into the, the organization that you're building there. But, you know, we had a couple – polls out this week, you know, showing, you know, Biden, Sanders, Warren all grouped at the top. And then I, I think the new entrant is Mayor Pete. Um, some of them, I think he's as high as two. And so talk a little bit about, I mean, I think that there's, I think this is inaccurate, but there's a sense, I think, amongst the political elite right now that, you know, okay, it's it's basically those top four and, and the question is the order. And then everybody else is sort of trailing and, and maybe there's, maybe whoever comes in fifth, you know, gets a ticket out of there. But, you know, the history of Iowa is that we're still so incredibly early and this race is fluid. And, and my sense is people won't, you know, some people have obviously, you guys have signed up, a lot of people, other candidates have, but the vast majority of people are going to attend the caucuses, particularly if the turnout, you know, goes north of, of, of 250 or, or 280, which some people think it could, you know, haven't decided. Some haven't checked in. And so that fluidity, you know, my view is this gets to be real serious after the holidays and you're kind of in a four-week sprint. But talk about how you guys view Iowa. Is that right from your perspective? And, and if it is, how do you plan for it? Um, I just, and it must be frustrating for you because there is a sense that like, okay, it really is just like, is it Mayor Pete, Biden, Warner, Sanders? Who's one, two, three, four? Um, as opposed to understanding, I think that there is a great deal of fluidity out there. Yeah, it's, if there's one thing that frustrates me uh, every day, it is it is that narrative that, frankly, I'm old enough to remember three weeks ago when this was a two-person race between Biden and Warren, uh, and all <laughs> of a sudden now it's a four-person race uh, uh, with others moving around. And that was, you know, 
That was just a couple of weeks ago. So there are going to be so many twists and turns between now and February 3rd. And, um, you know, I've lived through this. I've worked the caucuses twice in 04 and 08. I've won some, I've lost some. Uh, and uh, uh, I know that, you know, if, at this point in 2003, the if we were having this conversation, we would be talking about Dean Clark and Lieberman, uh, who came, uh, and Gephardt, who, none of whom came in the top two in, in uh in Iowa, but they were polling in the top four at this point, uh, you know, 16 years ago. Um, and so, so our theory is exactly that. I think really this is a race for January. Um, that's where most voters are going to, or caucus goers are going to, um, make their decisions. They've told us that as well, which is the thing that I think frustrates me the most is even in the polling that comes out from, uh, you know, the Seltzer poll in Iowa to even the ones that came, came out this week, a majority to a, you know, super majority of the caucus goers are saying, yeah, I'm saying I'm voting for or caucusing for whomever it might be, but I can change my mind between now and February 3rd. And so we know the fluidity of this. And my goal has always been keep Cory Booker's favorabilities high, introduce him to more voters so his name, or caucus goers, so his name recognition goes up, make sure he's on everybody's list, which as you well know, is a thing in Iowa and New Hampshire's of the world. Um, and that's exactly where we are poised to sort of have a strong January uh, and be that candidate like a Kerry, like an Edwards, like even an Obama um, who, who surges at the end. Right. So you uh, in Iowa and elsewhere, but we'll focus on Iowa, you have secured a lot of significant endorsements from, you know, local Democratic officials uh, and leaders. Um, talk about how important you think that'll be as we get into the stretch drive here. And I'd love to hear, you know, you know, you had worked the caucuses before. It'd be probably interesting for our listeners to understand what you did in those races, but how that's informed. I mean, you're leading this effort. Obviously, Cory Booker's the candidate, but you're running the race day to day, you know, kind of at an operational level. Just, um, you know, particularly if we're looking at a big turnout in this large candidate field, you know, I'd love to, you know, for you to share with our listeners, um, you know, both based on your experience in Iowa, um, but the kind of, you know, organization you've been able to put together for Corey, kind of where has that has led you strategically? Yeah. So on the endorsements front, you know, we, I think one of the main advantages that our campaign has that sometimes flies under the radar is Corey has been building our political operation in Iowa, um, you know, since even before this campaign began, frankly, and New Hampshire for that matter. Um, he was helping last cycle with Axne campaign and Finkenauer and raising money for the state party, one of the top raisers in Iowa. Uh, uh, Chairman Buckley up in New Hampshire called him the best friend that New Hampshire Democrats had in 2018 when we picked up the uh, Pappas seat and had a strong uh, showing up and down the ticket there. And so we've been sort of building the the political infrastructure that led to the endorsements and that you talk about. And still, if you go to Iowa Starting Line or any of these folks who are tracking endorsements from elected officials and um, uh, and activists and what have you, our list is extremely long. And the reason why that's important is uh, the caucuses are really a neighbor-to-neighbor effort. Um, as, as, as you know, and I think a lot of your listeners know, you actually have to walk into a room for perhaps a couple hours and stand either beside or, or across from uh, the community leaders for whom you vote, who you support, who you go to, you know, go to church with, whatever it might be. And so we have a disproportionate amount of support in that group. And I think that has an effect on the ground in, uh, in a caucus room come February 3rd, where, you know, I would from from Heather Matson, who's a state rep, to Amy Nielsen, to Mark Smith, to uh, you name it. We have uh, Jennifer Comfirst. We have these folks who are going to be able to go and walk to the other side of the room or greet people as they're walking into the caucus and say, hey, 
I know you might still be undecided or you may be deciding between your final two candidates here, but here's why you should come with Cory Booker. And uh, you cannot, you, you both can't quantify and also can't discount the power of that when you walk into a caucus room. And I've been there, as you said, in 04, I was in a caucus where um, Janet Peterson, who is now the Senate minority leader, but at that time was a state representative, was our precinct captain in Des Moines 49. I remember the precinct and actually brought a delegate over to us because she you know, walked over to, I forget whose side of the room was and convinced an unviable, uh, uh, a person who's caucusing for an unviable candidate to come over and give Kerry that extra delegate. So it, that, you know, it is a true hand-to-hand combat in Iowa in that sense. And the fact that you have those community leaders and elected officials, uh, does, does really make a difference in your ability to, to get delegates come, come February 3rd. So talk about your, you, you mentioned you were in Polk County in 04. Talk a little bit about your 08 experience. And, you know, that was a high turnout. It was not the large field we have right now, but I'm just <laughs> so curious. So I, I mentioned New Hampshire, so you got to mention Iowa. <laughs> yeah, sorry, man. <laughs> back at me, I'm huh? getting back at you. Yeah, I uh, know. Yeah, I deserve that. Uh, no, it was, I was, for those who don't know, I, I was the deputy field director for Senator Clinton uh, back in 2007, 2008. And, um, and yeah, we were up against, I mean, I think, honestly, uh, Obama, Clinton, and Edwards, that cycle had three of the best field operations that the Iowa caucuses have ever seen. Um, and that includes the carry operation I worked for in 04 that won. It was a juggernaut and you guys built a real juggernaut with Paul and Mitch. And, and, um, and we saw sort of the, the importance of bringing new people into the process, the importance of having, uh, you know, young people, which I think, uh, is, can't be discounted in a lot of these caucuses where you want to be the energetic fun side of the room, uh, and, uh, the sort of hopeful side of the room to, to coin a term and, and president then Senator Obama definitely had that, uh, in, in 2008 in a way that, uh, both Senator Clinton and Senator Edwards did not. And so, you know, the, the dynamics of a caucus are just really hard to put your finger on if you haven't seen it before, haven't been there before, but we are, sort of focused on you want to you have to be able to win 1600 plus rooms and um and the quality of the people are just as important as the quantity in a lot of ways this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm curious, Adiso, so your background in Iowa, understanding the caucuses, I think has got to be Um, a huge net benefit for the Booker campaign. But you probably have to check yourself a little bit because you've got Iowa staff, you know, who are leading that effort. And so how do you balance that so that you give them the space and room they need? Yeah, that's a really good question. uh, You know, Mike Froselon, who ran the state uh, House caucus campaigns last cycle and is our state director there, I really do keep hands off of of what he does. Same for Aaron Turmel in New Hampshire, same for Phil Kim and. Nevada, same for Crystal Spain and I in, in South Carolina. You have to, the only way to do this right, in my opinion, is to hire the best people and let them run their race. Now I have to be the ultimate decider of 
the budget, the allocations between those four states, and obviously I have to say yes and say no based on those things. Um, travel, all those kind of things come to me, but I do not micromanage Mike, that's for sure. Um, and I do not, same goes for the other three. Uh, I let them, you know, do what they think they need to do to win their states. And, um, and I, you know, while certainly of the four, Iowa is the one that I'm the, the, you know, most of an expert in, um, I didn't, I wasn't hired to run, to be the Iowa state director. <laughs> I was hired to be the campaign manager and think about other things. And, and so, um, it is a federalist system, at least it should be, I think these campaigns in that sense, in that if you, if you can't take your hands off the wheel and let the talented people that you hire, uh, run the show, you're doing something wrong. And frankly, you're going to create tensions that aren't necessary to, to, um, uh, and actually get in the way of, of ultimately being successful. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough balancing act. So um, I'm sure you'll reject this premise. And again, I think history suggests that it won't be this neat and tidy. But if, in fact, it ends up being the four people um, who now are leading polls end up in those positions, do you think there is a fifth ticket coming out of Iowa? And, and in that scenario, I assume, you know, you guys obviously think you're going to do better than that. But finishing ahead of Harris, finishing ahead of Klobuchar, finishing ahead of Yang, then that becomes, I guess, the bare minimum you need to do to carry on into New Hampshire and beyond. Yeah, you know, I think the old adage that there are three tickets out of Iowa, I don't think necessarily um, holds if there are 15 plus candidates, uh, you know, in the race. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I think you got to beat expectations first and foremost. And I think um, that's because of what I said earlier. This is as much about narrative and media as it is about delegates in, in Iowa and New Hampshire. Not that the, the delegates aren't important. I well know that. But um, but how you sort of use it as a springboard to jump into New Hampshire and then New Hampshire into Nevada and so forth is important. And so I do think if the narrative is baked in um, – uh, that those are the four who are going to come in the top four, then who comes in fifth matters. And you're, you're, we're also seeing that in New Hampshire, right? Um, I think it is it is widely accepted that the neighbor state senators, Warren and Sanders, are are sort of one, two in that state. And so who comes in third is uh, is important, right? It creates a, a Bill Clinton comeback kid, 92 kind of possibility for the candidate who doesn't actually win, but who beats expectations. And so um, I think that is definitely true. I think that is, um, you know, part of the game here because once we get to March, uh, and you know this well, uh, you, nobody is going to have enough money to compete in every single state. Nobody is going to have, <laughs> there's only one candidate, so you can't physically duplicate yourself and be in all these places when you have 10, six, however many states voting on a given day. And so you're going to have to have the media and, and earn some media to, um, amplify your message and get yourself out there. And the way you do that is by beating expectations and putting yourself on the on the map in that sense. Right. So I love Nevada uh, and New Hampshire, but I want to skip to South Carolina for a minute. So again, if you guys have done what is required, and I think we can't define that right now, but you are alive and kicking and have the requisite strength to have a chance at South Carolina, what sort of what would that ideal field look like for you? I mean, is it you know, has has Biden, you know, really disappointed in the first state? So so you have a better chance at African-American vote. You know, how important is it for both uh, Warren and Biden to be alive? And and with the huge caveat that you don't have any control over this <laughs> uh, and you kind of just got to deal with how the chips fall. I don't think folks have, a, 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 a you know, yet 
I think, a, a, an understanding of, of sufficient nature about how much of this depends on what that, the, basically what the survivors look like and the composition of them. And some of that's going to work for certain candidates and some of it's actually, no matter how well they do, is going to make it harder for them because, um, you know, th- that sort of final grouping is just not ideal for them. Yeah, I totally agree. And I said it earlier, I'll say it again, no Democratic nominee uh, basically, other than uh, Dukakis when Jesse Jackson was running, but from 76 to 2016, the defining sort of uh, characteristic of the eventual Democratic nominee was the candidate that consolidated black voters in the in the South. And so our positioning, I think, and I've said this privately, I've said it publicly, I will say it now, is we want to be the leading candidate uh, amongst African Americans uh, if not going into Super Tuesday, certainly coming out of it. And uh, cert- I, you know, I'm not telling any secrets here that that um, Vice President Biden is currently has a hold on African American voters in South Carolina and elsewhere in the South. I do think a lot of that has to do with um, name recognition and and affiliation with President Obama and and well earned. But if he is not, and I think um, we are already seeing cracks in in this, if he is not doing well uh, uh, coming around the bend of uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. And black voters in South Carolina are looking for a winner, looking for somebody who they may be able to get behind if Corey is there as the sort of obvious alternative, not just because he is black, but because he has spent a lifetime fighting for uh, black and brown communities. Um, I think we have the ability to, as you said earlier, if not win a majority, win a plurality of those votes. And as you know, and I think most of your listeners know, the delegates are concentrated in districts that are heavily Democratic, obviously, and those districts are disproportionately African-American. And on Super Tuesday, not just South Carolina, which is a majority black primary electorate, but if you go to Super Tuesday, I I essentially divide the states into two buckets. You basically have home states of our opponents, (laughs) California, Minnesota, uh, Texas, although Beto just got out, um, Massachusetts, Vermont. And then basically what's left is Southern states with if not majority plurality black electorates, Virginia, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, North Carolina, um, Tennessee. And that is where um, I think our strength, uh, and it's latent right now for sure, but that's where our latent strength um, uh, lies. And for those who say that that Mayor Pete or or Senator Klobuchar or somebody else is the Biden alternative, I, I, I will just bluntly say, if you cannot win and consolidate those black voters on those Super Tuesday, in those Super Tuesday Southern states, you cannot be the Biden alternative. And I think Corey ultimately is the one who, um, who can and, and will be the Biden alternative as we, as we get to late February and early March. The Biden alternative from a sort of numerical and delegate standpoint, right? So I had Jeff Berman on the pod a couple of weeks ago, and, and we went deep on delegates. You've referenced those congressional districts down south, but I think it'd be really interesting for folks to to hear from your perspective as a, as a campaign manager, you've been through these before, just explain a little bit more in detail, because obviously you can't really yield delegate halls without winning landslides. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you can win some states by a landslide, but the real delegate, um, you know, gains people can make are actually by winning certain congressional districts, <laughs> you know, by landslides. So talk a little bit more about that and how that's, you know, again, you said it's latent, but it's clearly important to your strategy. Oh, definitely. You know, if you go to Mississippi, Benny Thompson's district in the Delta there, the I think he's the only African-American, only Democrat in uh, the Mississippi congressional delegation, has a disproportionate amount of the delegates coming out of Mississippi. And his district is a supermajority, if I'm not mistaken, of African-American Democratic primary voters. And so, you know, you can win Mississippi, which you want to, because that gives you the sort of statewide 
your proportion of the statewide delegates if you get over 15%. But winning the Thompson congressional district is is just as important to get as many of those de- uh, those delegates as you can. And if you frankly can win by a landslide and hold everybody else under 15%, you can get all of them. Uh, and that's where the consolidation and the hopeful consolidation of African-American voters comes into play, right? If if we are in a place where there are six or seven candidates still in the race and one can hold black voters as a block, you could win every delegate in the Thompson congressional district, for example, or G.K. Butterfield's in uh, in Durham, North Carolina, uh, with 30% of the vote and everybody else gets 14 or less. And you've just, um, had a huge delegate hall with only, you know, with less than half of the vote. And so to me, that's the, again, it depends on a consolidation of African-American voters, which has traditionally happened. It may not happen this time, but we are definitely looking not just in the South, but you go to Detroit, you go to, um, uh, St. Louis, places that come a little later in March. And that is where I think Corey's strength is and where, frankly, if you're not playing for those delegates, you might win a bunch of the, uh, you might win a, you know, a split of the delegates in in other districts, but get swamped because uh, you, you lost sort of the core base of the Democratic Party, which are which are black voters, not just in urban centers, but uh, in rural areas as well and uh, across the country. That's such an important point. So um, you make a really important point, Adisu, that um, the turnaround from South Carolina to Super Tuesday is extraordinarily short. So in back in 08, when we had to do this turn, uh, it was 10 days, which was still ridiculously short, <laughs> but, you know, uh, almost luxurious compared to three days. So <laughs> three days, you know, you talked about one of, one of your jobs as manager is, you know, budget decisions, resource allocation. You know, I think it's fair to say, you know, there's other candidates in the race that have an easier time raising money. You guys, I think, did something smart, you know, a couple months ago where you really told people like you needed to raise a certain amount of money really to stay in the race. And you're able to do that. Um, but as you as you look at March, so, you know, you know, a lot of those states vote by mail early. So you have to have vote by mail programs, organizers, digital advertising. Like, how are you approaching that? Because to your point, even if Cory Booker does what he needs to do in February and, and you come out of February out of South Carolina uh, like a freight train, um, you know, the, re- the rest of the calendar happens right in front of you. And so how are you handling that balance now between, you know, providing what the early states need, but also having an eye towards, um, you know, March, um, where most of the country is going to vote and most of the delegates are. And just how do you see that unfolding for you guys? Because I, I see that that could be a challenge. If everything comes to pass as you'd like, are you able to fully capitalize on your momentum from a, a resource and organizational standpoint in March? Yeah, it is. It is the reason why we did what we did in September in a lot of ways, and and it, it still remains a challenge. If I'm being perfectly honest, it's it is our path is through February, but um, March comes on you real quick. Twenty nine days. It, of course, it's the shortest month. So uh, so all of a sudden you got dozens of states, and as you said, I'm a, I think it's a plurality of delegates that are decided over the course of three Tuesdays, the 3rd, 10th, and 17th in March. And so we are disproportionately investing in the early states because we have to, uh, frankly, because of our resource constraints. But uh, because of what we did in September, we are able to now do some some early investments, what I would consider, I mean, not early, but <laughs> uh, early enough to be impactful investments uh, into the Californias of the world, into the South, um, where uh, where we have to. And so I literally have people on the ground right now in Alabama um, collecting signatures for the filing uh, 
deadline, which is coming up. Um, we've got uh, folks on the ground in North Carolina starting now. But um, do I wish I could do more? Absolutely. Uh, I think that um, we're going to need the we're going to need the media coming out of February to help us springboard a little bit here. But um, you know, I basically spent February to no September laser focused on on um, February September of this year, laser focused on the early states, and now as we turn to the fourth quarter here when I looked at the budget and I was like, I can't, I can't do it yet unless I get more money. <laughs> uh, that's when we threw out our, our, our 1.7 challenge and said, it's now or never. And last thing I'll say here is this is one thing that I think the press really needs to cover more, which is that there may be 17 or however many candidates left in this race. But if you are not doing the things that you talked about, David, if you are not getting on the ballot in Alabama and Virginia and Ohio and the places that, um, uh, where deadlines are coming up at the end of this year, you're not a credible candidate for president. You can't win. And why? What are you doing here? And Corey has never been in this race to to you know be on a stage and run for uh, vice president or cabinet or sell books or anything like that. We are in this thing to win it. And if you want to win it, you better be investing in March now. And luckily, we were able to start that in October, thanks to what we did in September. All right. Well, the the great winnowing will be upon us soon enough. <laughs> So I'm I'm curious, you know, when you look at a scenario where, you know, Cory Booker uh, has done what he needs to in the early states, is is accumulating delegates in March. You know, I've talked to some of your other fellow campaign managers about this. I mean, again, history suggests that, you know, somebody does emerge. You know, whether that someone ultimately, you know, has a majority of the pledged delegates, they'll have a clear plurality and, and folks will rally around them. But it does seem like there's a higher than average, you know, chance that, um, you know, uh, we could have three say the to, word. Right, well, <laughs> um, maybe not necessarily yeah. a brokered convention, but we have three to four candidates like, you know, going through those, you know, those three Tuesdays in March, as you mentioned, and even into to April in the Mid-Atlantic, where the thing is not as clear as it normally is. And again, that's like not something you can control. Um, and you probably don't spend much time planning for it. But so again, this is maybe even less with your booker hat on, but how likely do you think something like that could be? I think it's pretty likely. Um, I don't know if it's the if it's the you know fifty plus one percent likely scenario, but it may be the plurality most likely likely scenario right now. I think, you know, there are kind of two ways I could see this going. Um, using historical analogy, one would be the the two thousand four way, which is, um, you know, we were kind of ready to get as a party on with the business of taking on George Bush at that time, and John Kerry won Iowa, won New Hampshire basically rolled like a freight train and ended this thing early and consolidated the party around him by Super Tuesday, uh, if not right after. I, I actually could see that happening. It's it's not out of the question. Uh, but the other one is the sort of the 08 um, uh, model, but with more candidates. Um, and that, you know, it will be very difficult if you have four candidates who are all, who all have a credible um, possibility of getting delegates, of hitting 15% in states, sticking around, I would say into April. Once once that happens, and I think that's certainly possible, then then broker convention or not being able to secure the number of pledged delegates necessary to win on the first ballot, I think, becomes um, more and more likely. And I, I could see it. I could see it. There's a you know there's a world in which um, um, it, whether it's the four who are at top right now or somebody like Cory Booker breaks into it. Um, where we've basically split the party in quarters and, uh, and there's no reason for anybody to get out. So you, 
I hesitate, as you can hear in my voice, to partially because like it hurts my soul to think about fighting this thing out all the way until Milwaukee on July sixteenth next year. But uh, it is definitely, definitely possible um, if if this thing doesn't winnow. I would say by by the middle of uh, of March or early April. Thanks for calming everybody down out there, DC. But. <laughs> I, you, I I took my Booker hat off and put my pundit hat on, and then I now I'm going to cry into my Well, there dinner. we go. <laughs> well, we, we got to stare hard truths in the face, right? We can't yeah. run from them. So that no, is it is a, what a it possibility. is. Yeah. I actually want to talk about the general election uh, in a minute. But I'm curious from your standpoint, you know, maybe as it relates to 16, you know, whether it's organizing techniques, um, you know, use of digital or, or, um, or data, um, you know, the media, what's what's changed over the last three or four years that, that folks might be interested in, in terms of some of the tactics and techniques that are being used out there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it is it is different even from four years ago and certainly from, from 12 years ago. Um, I would say the biggest thing is how important the national media is towards influencing the early states um, and, and influencing in general. But um, there is definitely, and this may be a Trump thing as much as it, as it is a sort of uh, modernity thing, but um, there is a the, the voters in the early states are paying attention to the national narrative in a way that I I did not see certainly in 08 uh, or even 16 in a lot of ways, and that means. You know, you're getting questions. Not it's it's funny, not about impeachment, but you're getting real process questions on the on the trail. How do you win? You know, what is your path of victory? Questions like you're asking me, or questions that Cory Booker is getting from New Hampshire voters or from Nevada caucus scores out there. And I think that well, a, yeah, talk about the latest Quinnipiac poll, right? Yeah, exactly. Kind of it's happening, yeah. and I think that uh, that didn't exist. Uh, in I think the world of social media has certainly helped push that along, and that people are sort of really plugged into behind the scenes and they're seeing stuff behind the scenes. Um, and so part of our push to 1.7 at the end of September was to play into that, right? To say, okay, you want to, you know, let me show you, let me show you what this thing is really like, what it really costs, what it, you know, lift up the hood a little bit for the voter, not just the media or the, um, political insider, but your rank and file voter who's paying attention. And so that to me has been the biggest sort of realization. And, um, uh, a couple of the folks I talked to before taking this job warned me of that. And they were a hundred percent right that, um, that at least for 2019, I think this is going to change once the calendar changes to 2020, but this year has been largely about national media narratives and, um, what's happening in the early States is just, it's breaking through on the ground, but it's not breaking through to the larger electorate. And, um, using using that to your advantage is something that I think is increasingly important in national politics. Um, it is it is harder to I don't think it's fatal. I don't think it's impossible, but it is harder to run um, the way that a Barack Obama did or a John Kerry did or a, J a Jimmy Carter did um, uh, and really sort of introduce yourself face to face to voters because they're just going home and watching MSNBC like the rest of us. <laughs> it's a big change. It is. Because I'll tell you, as you know, heading into eight, Barack Obama's national narrative was no good. Nope. So Iowa was kind of an oasis. Um, how about a lot of folks are talking about relational organizing. Can you, A, explain that to people a little bit and, and, and to the extent that that's important part of your strategy in states like Iowa and South Carolina? Yeah, it is. Look, just making sure that your organizing program is decentralized to a way, in a way that um, I think Obama did pioneer this and others have, have done, have, have taken it to the next level over the course of the last 12 years. But ensuring that, 
um, you are using your volunteers and using your your supporters and plugging into their networks as opposed to a top-down model of organizing has become even more important. And again, this kind of goes to what I was saying before, breaking through the, the media narrative, especially as we um, lose more local out, outlets, uh, which is sad, but a, a reality out there, the best way to communicate um, to voters in a lot of ways is to get a trusted uh, partner, a trusted person, um, a trusted volunteer, a trusted supporter to communicate your message directly to a smaller group of people. And so we are using a bunch of tools. Um, one's called Outvote, which I think a bunch of the campaigns are using um, to tap into existing networks as opposed to uh, dictating who the um, you know what universes to talk to. Um, we are you know saying okay use use your iPhone phone book here's you can scrape it and send this uh, this message to them and see who responds and then plugging that information back to us and that's a big change certainly from when I was a field organizer or field director but um, you just ha you literally have to do it because um, the old fashioned ways of doing voter contact are becoming less and less um, uh, well I would say doors are still number one but certainly phones and other ways are becoming I think less and less effective people just aren't. Uh, aren't picking up the phone and aren't engaging in the way they used to. So folks who are utilizing OutVote and other tools in, for you guys, is that all your volunteers? Is that just your precinct captains and, and team leaders? Is how, how does that work? It's all. It's all. It's our precinct mm -hmm. captains. It's our volunteers. It's our staff. Um, one of the things we realized, I want to say in the summer, is just how powerful our staff networks are, In certainly in the early states. And this goes to the fact that Corey most of our hires have been from people from states or from those communities. And so, you know, the power of, uh, and the endorsers you were talking about earlier, the power of their, you know, Rolodexes or the digital equivalent of their Rolodexes is frankly just as powerful as a voter file. <laughs> and so we are getting everybody from staff to supporters to endorsers to use these kind of tools. And they're telling us who the who to talk to as much as um, we are telling them, you know, who to target. And that's a, that is a little bit of a sea change from, from what, what we've done historically. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the general a little bit. So, you know, the, the Milwaukee brokered convention scenario, I do not think, uh, fair to say, uh, helps our chances. They may not, you know, be <laughs> fatal, but, but, you know, how do you view, I'd love to, you know, you know, the country well, so, um, I'd love you to talk about the general election, you know, sort of generally, but also specifically where you think Cory Booker would would bring outside strength. I mean, my view is uh, maybe we'll get lucky and, and we end up beating Trump by some margin, but I think we're going to head to an absolute dogfight in these states, um, particularly if he's able to drive up, you know, his registration and turnout amongst his base. And there's a lot more people that look like, uh, you know, Trump's MAGA base who are unregistered uh, than our base, sadly, in the battlegrounds, uh, particularly if you look at that upper Midwest. So talk about the general election, how Democrats should view it, and, and why do you think Cory Booker would be able to put the coalition we need to beat Trump in a close race? Yes. Yeah, so one thing I will say to every single one of your listeners is this thing is going to be a dogfight. If anybody thinks we're going to run away with this thing, they are sadly mistaken. And I think there's a chance, certainly, that we win by a electoral college landslide. Uh, but uh, the actual, you know, the margins in some of these states are going to be relatively, relatively close. And, and we, ha we need to approach it that way. You know, our theory of the case for why Corey is the best candidate to be the, to be Donald Trump is because we think that there are sort of two demographics that are critical, uh, to, to winning a lot of those swing states. 
uh, and, and not just the traditional ones in the upper Midwest, but also the sort of emerging ones in the South and in the Sun Belt. And so one would be suburban um, women in particular, but suburban voters who took a chance on Trump in 2016 in a lot of ways, and I think have soured on him as proof as proved by uh, the 2018 results and even, um, you know, this week's results in Virginia and other places, uh, you know, suburban Cincinnati and in Kentucky is what put Governor-elect Bashir over the over the top, and so appealing to suburban voters and turning them out and persuading them and flipping them in higher numbers is something that Cory Booker is uniquely qualified to do because New Jersey is a lot of New Jersey is just a big, a lot of suburbs of both New York City and, and Philadelphia, and he has proven his ability to talk to those voters who aren't just Democrats, but some of them are independents and even moderate Republicans. The second group and the one that I it just frustrates me to no end that we don't talk about enough is voters of color in urban areas in particular. And that has literally been the cause of Cory Booker's life. And he proved, uh, he has proven in his previous elections for city council, for mayor, even for Senate, the campaign I ran, his special election uh, in 2013, Chris Christie put our special election on a Wednesday in the middle of October, two and a half weeks before the real general election, basically to depress turnout. And uh, we ended up having a 13% African-American turnout on that day with only Cory on the ballot. A couple of weeks later, it was under 10% on the general election ballot. And so Corey has a proven ability to turn out voters of color, inspire voters of color. And I do think this is where there's a, a difference between what we can do and what Vice President Biden can do. Love him. He has a unique appeal to African-American older voters who are amongst the most reliable voters in the Democratic Party. We can't take them for granted and nor should we. But to be able to increase that number of Latinos, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, African-Americans, you're going to have to go to younger folks. And I think that's where Corey has and will shine. So if you can appeal, if we can sort of rise our 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 vote share in the in the suburbs among suburban women in particular, and our uh, turnout in the urban core with voters of color in the in you know the Phoenixes, Atlantas, uh, Charlottes of the world, as well as the Detroit's, Philadelphias, and, and Milwaukee's. I think uh, we have the chance, and Corey would be able to to you know put a lot of states into play that aren't otherwise um, on the map, and and maybe even win all of them. How much is that going to be part of the close in Iowa for you and all the candidates? I mean, obviously, all the candidates are running for president. Not, you know, to talk about, you know, turnout in the Electoral College. They have ideas for how to lead the country and the world. But, you know, to your point, um, you know, the national media is affecting these early states much more. People are deathly concerned about electability and beating Trump. So how much, if I recall, that was part of your close in 04 with Kerry that was quite effective. You yeah. know, I don't know how literal it was, but there was a, the, the electability thing clearly helped him. So how much of that do you think will be part of the, the close there? It, it, it is. I mean, it is It is definitely a question that we get a lot, as I was saying before. And um, Corey gave a speech at the um, National Press Club a couple weeks ago where we sort of laid this out and we continue to lay it out. I think, you know, it, it, we sort of have two message tracks, as it were. There's a process argument, but then there's the substance. And, and Corey always says, and he's right, that beating Donald Trump is the floor for a Democratic nominee. It can't be the ceiling. And so if Corey is speaking about what I, you know, that's an argument that I can give, the one that I just gave. If he's giving that argument to Iowa caucus goers, he's not talking about health care or climate change or lowering drug costs or whatever it may be, education, all the things that are keeping people up at night. And so 
you know, it's kind of my job in a lot of ways and the campaign's job to make that argument in, in venues like this and, and to people who care to hear it. But I want to make sure that, that Corey does what he does best, which is inspire people and talk about the issues that matter to them. And, and if we can sort of run those dual tracks um, over the course of the next 90 days, I think we can be successful. But without question, it's something that we're going to continue to talk about. And Corey will when he has to uh, and when, uh, when he must. But, um, uh, you know... My candidate, our candidate, I think he's our best asset in terms of speaking directly to voters about the concerns that uh, that they care most about, and I want to keep them there. I'm curious, Adiso, as you think about, you know, one of the great things about the election results this week, we saw in many states, 18, is I do think from an elect, elected official standpoint, the Democratic bench is, is really getting uh, re-energized. It's just so exciting to see sort of just normal people winning office, you know, who you know, some of them may decide not to make a career of politics, but I think our bench is strengthened. One thing that strikes me is this primary race, you know, the large number of candidates, you know, you're all building big organizations of, of great organizers in the early states. It seems like, you know, this is going to serve us really well, not just in 20, but in the, the years to come. You have any view on that? I completely agree. It's something I, I remember back in 08 when I was, as you were in the tough fight between Senators Obama and Clinton. Uh, I even said at the time, I, I hope there's a recording of it somewhere, that I thought it was one of the best things to ever happen to the Democratic Party was that um, that long battle, as painful as it was in the moment, because it trained a generation of organizers. It inspired uh, people to get involved. And and ultimately, I think it's part of what helped uh, you know Senator Obama become President Obama and become the candidate we saw you know, from June to to November, and the president we saw from for eight years, and so I do think that that this this campaign has the capacity to do the same. I'm so proud of our organizers on the ground, and and every organizer on the ground. I you know I was texting with some of my friends from Beto's campaign um, after he dropped out last week, and talking about good folks that we might be able to pick up and things like that. And and there's just such talent out there, and there is no better crucible for for getting good at this than presidential politics, presidential campaigns in early states in particular. And so whoever is the nominee will have a wealth of talent from 25 campaigns or wherever it was at its peak to, to choose from. We're going to need all those folks. We're going to need the organizing core folks from the DNC. This thing is going to scale to thousands and thousands of people. But now we have a, a great bench of, of talent to, to do that and take on Donald Trump. And that's the, that's the fight that's the most important thing in the end here. And uh, we always have to keep our eyes on that prize. And I'm happy that... Um, and I believe that folks are going to be energized to do that even after a, an exhausting primary that may run through July. <laughs> right. Well, but, you know, some of these organizers, they might be working in a county and then in 2022, they're field director. And then by 24, they're running races themselves. I mean, that's what's exciting about this. I think we're we're going to match. Yeah, it's what happened to me. I mean, yeah, yeah <laughs> that know, was your it's, journey. It's my story. I did not think that politics would be a career for me when I went to Iowa in May of 2003. But, you know, it's 16 and a half years later and I'm running one. And, uh. I'm sure that somebody listening to this or one of the organizers for one of the campaigns will run a presidential campaign someday and this experience will be their first, you know, taste of this. And so that's exciting to to know that that's that we're doing that out there as a party, not just as a campaign. Uh, for sure. So, uh, Adisa, you've been so nice to spend time with us. I'll let you go. One last question. So I think people hear the word presidential campaign manager and they assume you're living and breathing sort of super rarefied air. <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously, you know, given your journey, right, you were an organizer in Iowa 16 years ago. Now you're running one of these, which is which is really such a tremendous 
accomplishment. But talk a little bit about, so of course there is some of those rarefied moments, right? The strategery and, and the strategy <laughs> and, but, and dealing with a candidate, but there's also like just the drudgery. So talk a little bit about that range, right? The sort of like the stuff that people might remember from the West Wing that, you know, you actually are doing. And then the stuff that, you know, people may be surprised a presidential campaign manager has to deal with. <laughs> I mean, I ought to figure out what I can say and what I can't. Yeah, right. Um, you know, the stuff, I would say the the most memorable, the stuff that is the times where I have to sort of pinch myself are the debates in particular where, you know, I'm in the spin room with the with the popsicle stick that says Cory Booker and he's there with 50 cameras around him and reporters are shoving recorders in my face and I'm like, how the hell did I get here? Uh, but those are those are the moments that are more like the West Wing, uh, you know, than, than like the real day-to-day, which is, I mean, honestly, the thing that I value the most and the thing that I think gets talked about the least is the management. Um, just the you know, the day-to-day of, of taking care of people, making sure that they're motivated, making sure that they, you know, are taken care of um, literally with their benefits and things like that. That's the stuff that is a grind, but it is, um, you know, it's important. I'm the CEO of a company, a multi-million dollar company in a lot of ways. And and my first responsibility is to get Cory Booker elected, but I feel like my 1B is to take care of the people who have given their life to, to this cause for as long as, as I can. And so that's the unglamorous stuff. Um, but to me, it's just as important as, is the, the, you know, I'm going tonight to trivia night, uh, with our, with our headquarters staff and just spending some time with the, with the team. And, uh, I remember when, uh, <laughs> when, when the campaign manager was somebody that I was scared to talk to, right. And I want to make sure that I provide that example, a good example for the people who, again, who someday might be sitting in this chair and, and, uh, and, and make them have a good experience on this campaign, no matter what the, uh, what the outcome. And so there's the highs and there's the fun stuff and there's the glamour, but every single day is more like, uh, it's a job. It is a job and you gotta, you gotta take it seriously. Cause a lot of people are not just my staff, but a lot of Americans are counting on us to succeed. Right. Well, we'll get the real dirt from you when this is over. Um, <laughs> but, but I appreciate that. No, I mean, you know, campaigns are like anything else, a family, a business, they're human yeah. beings. And that's where exactly. most of the highs come from. But as you know, human beings are what they are. So it, it makes it, it hard and, and complex and complicated. Well, Dusu, thank you for spending time with us, sharing your view of, of Cory Booker's path here. And, uh, you know, it's obviously going to be uh, both an exhilarating and exhausting next few months for you. So hang in there, my friend. And then if I can take the mic for one second to say, I appreciate you giving me advice as we led into this and over the course of this, I promise you it's all, uh, it's all gravy, totally above board stuff, but to have people who came before, uh, uh, like yourself, you know, be willing to, you know, help people who walked into a job and that they've never done before. I really appreciate it. So I just want to thank you publicly for, for helping me out and, and paving the way. No, of course, man. But I mean, I think anybody who gets in the arena like you're doing and, and all the other staff that you've hired to join the effort, I mean, are just just patriots and heroes. And, right, we're all going to end up getting behind one person. Maybe it's Cory Booker, maybe it's not. But Damn right. <laughs> it's going to take, to your point, I mean, millions of Americans volunteering and then thousands and thousands of staff kind of doing the best work of their life to make sure we turn Donald Trump into a one-term, not two-term president. So uh, uh, those of you that are in the arena day-to-day, I, I just couldn't be more admiring of and... Uh, you know, we'll watch with great interest, um, you know, how you execute over the next few weeks. Appreciate it, David. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks to DSO. Well, fascinating conversation with DSO as I, I knew it would be. A couple things, you know, jumped out at me. One, um, they believe Iowa is still very fluid. So 
Now, it is clear in a scenario, and, and, and history suggests it's never this neat and tidy, but in a scenario where the top four now, Sanders, Warren, Biden, and, and Mayor Pete, remain in that ordering, he, he does think there'll be a fifth ticket out of Iowa. Um, obviously, they're planning to do better than that and, and think there's going to be an opening to do better than that uh, in Iowa. But uh, uh, So that was interesting. I think talking about their view of South Carolina and how important that is, you know, strategically to them, that that seems like a must win or, or come in the top two so that they have the ability then to get the type of vote and support they need in the African-American community, in particular in those big March states, particularly down south, where those uh, dominant African-American congressional districts are so important from a delegate standpoint. You know, Adisa was very honest about some of the challenges they have, you know, going um, into March and April, just because, you know, they've not raised the type of money a, a Warren or a Mayor Pete has, uh, for instance. And so they've got to make tougher decisions. And, and now they do are, they do have staff on in the ground in states like North Carolina. You know, he talked, they have people on the ground now getting themselves on the Alabama ballot. So it sounds like they're doing, you know, what they need to do, but they're going to be pressed. And I think he made a really important point, which is the turn from South Carolina to Super Tuesday is only three days. So South Carolina happens that last Saturday in February, then that first Tuesday in March. So back in 08, when Obama won the nomination and South Carolina was so important, we had 10 days. And that made a big difference because we were able to take, I think, fuller advantage of the momentum we had coming out of of South Carolina. So it's going to be a really interesting, I think, next 90 days to look at uh, at a campaign like Booker. I mean, how can they, at the bare minimum, uh, ensure they're in that fist slot in Iowa? But um, if the race really is as fluid as, as Adiso suggests, you know, is someone like Booker able to get into the top three or four and disrupt the race a little bit. And it was also interesting to hear his view of, of why Cory Booker would be a strong general election candidate, putting together the kind of coalition of, of real excitement and, and turnout amongst voters of color with the ability to do well in, in suburban areas. So, and his view that electability will be uh, an important debate as we head into Iowa, New Hampshire, and, and Nevada and South Carolina, that as much of these candidates have issues and plans, a lot of these voters who haven't decided, you know, uh, until the very end of those contests are going to be very focused on electability. So, um, you know, that's always been, we certainly in 08 had to to make that case and it was important to us. John Kerry did in 04, but I think given that it's Trump, you know, that we're worried about here and I think people's anxiety level is off the charts about nominating someone who can beat them, I think electability and people's sense of, of who would be the strongest nominee is going to come into stark relief. I, I think it may be more of an important dynamic than we've seen historically. So great conversation with the DSU, um, and uh, hopefully you learned a little bit more about both the Democratic primary race, but Cory Booker's view uh, and their campaign's view about how they can uh, come out on top in Milwaukee.